Welcome to the Deep Change Podcast, where we explore the future of human potential through psychology, brain tech, and pushing the boundaries of neuroplasticity. I'm your host, James Garrett, and today we have the honor of having Jay Bidharthi on the show. Jay is an award-winning experience designer for products that enhance mindfulness and well-being. He led the user experience team that launched the Muse Headband, a neurofeedback meditation assistant that uses EEG to deepen your meditation practice and which has earned tens of millions in revenue. He's published academic papers on technologies for mindfulness. He's established the annual Mindful Society Conference, which takes place every year in Toronto. He founded a new government innovation office He's been featured in top-tier publications and media, including Forbes, Fast Company, Vice, Inside Design, and CBC. And if this weren't enough, he's also an accomplished musician and has played in hundreds of musical concerts. But that's just the outside story. The inside story is that he's been practicing mindfulness for over 10 years, cementing his daily practice through meditation habits and regular extended retreats, including two months of intensive training in a monastic setting. If you've ever met Jay, you can feel the power of his mindfulness practice in his kind and lighthearted presence. This is a guy who's deeply concerned about our culture of distraction in today's attention economy, and he's dedicated his life to helping us all be more focused, more kind, and more mindful. He's one of the most intriguing people I've met over the last year, and I'm honored to have the chance to pick his brain today. Jay, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And I just need to clarify that a lot of those achievements were done with incredible other people. They were collaborative efforts, because I feel like you made it seem like I did this and I did that, but it was always, <laughs> always with incredible teams, and that's how great things happen. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so, Jay, I'm just super excited to, to chat with you today and uh, because I think you bring a lot of wealth, a wealth of kind of wisdom, experience, and perspective on the kind of brain and neurotech space and the mindfulness space in general. Um, so I want, I want to kind of start out with a, with a fairly uh, straightforward question. Um, you know, most of our listeners uh, understand what mindfulness is and, and have some kind of practice, but some don't. So how how would you define mindfulness um, in your own life? It's a very tough question. Because mm-hmm. um, in some way, you know, we could circle around a number of different conceptual frameworks for mindfulness. So we could talk about the way academics are discussing it and the way, you know, monastics are talking about it and modern monastics and historical but then you ask the question like in your daily life and i think the only way i can really answer that honestly is that um it's been pretty transformative uh in terms of purely being present with whatever's happening and letting go of some of our strong judgments and concepts that get in the way from us truly experiencing what's happening. Mm. Um, So for example, if you're looking at me right now, you know, I'm wearing a a blue shirt, right? And it's like, if you look at this, there's a concept, like it's a blue shirt, but at the same time, if you look closely, there's like maybe some like light, some light here, which is a different blue from kind of over here. And, you know, you can really kind of experience something beyond the concepts. And it's true of this shirt, but it's also true of our thoughts and it's true of the stories in our head and it's true of our deepest urges and our selfish urges and it's true of our breath. And all of these things are trainable, practicable skills. And when you practice them, they become applicable in daily life. And I I think a lot of people are familiar with, oh, okay, well, mindfulness, you go and you meditate on your breath. But what you're really doing there is you're training the ability to stay with an experience in the moment. And if you apply that to example, for example, to a conversation, you become a better listener and a more open person. 
you, you open yourselves up to different perspectives and your relationships become deeper. And that presence is very powerful in almost every aspect of life. And it really does all start from training those skills, whether you're looking at the blue of this shirt or noticing your breath or paying attention to the sounds in your environment. Um, so, you know, we can talk about all the concepts, all the different frameworks, yeah. the, the definitions, but you asked in my life and really in the past 10 years, by training this skill, I've really dissolved a lot of the concepts and stories that were driving me to do some pretty unhealthy or unadaptive things, maladaptive things, or holding myself back for no reason, or being selfish, or you know, sabotaging relationships, or being addicted to things that I didn't want to be addicted to. Uh, and it's an ongoing journey, but that's really the best way I can articulate it uh, if I'm trying to use words. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, right, right. Um, tell me, tell me, it's so so interesting. You bring up being a better listener. Mm -hmm. You know, it's one of the ways that I and deep and deeper relationships. Yeah, this is certainly something that I've noticed. You know, pretty a pretty meaningful shift in my own life. Uh, you know, I haven't been been kind of as serious of a student for as long as you have of mindfulness and meditation. Uh, I've been. I've been have I've had a meditation practice for probably a little over three years now, um, but in those three years, I, I notice I notice it interestingly when when I'm at conferences and I'm meeting with folks who you know in the past you know I just don't have any history with those people, um, and I just notice we can it's like we connect at, at this kind of more um, authentic kind of. Out of, it, we're out of our heads and we're in the moment, you know, yeah. and, and suddenly that, that thing we all do when we're, you know, quote, networking, which is kind of, we're, we're nervous and we're, we're trying to manage the impression we're making on other people. It kind of, as you say, it kind of dissolves. Mm -hmm. And then we just get to be ourselves, which is a wonderful way to be. <laughs> uh, and we get to be with that other person um, in a way that, that is really rich. Yeah. You know, it's a great example because our concepts and preconceptions almost prevent our ability to be with, as you put it, right. To be with the sunshine here, to be with this tree, to be with you here virtually. It's not actually as easy as just looking at each other, <laughs> you know, it's, we have all these concepts. And so you mentioned this word networking, right? Like that's a concept. That's a story about the social interaction that we're supposed to do at a conference. Mm. That we're supposed to be in a certain way because we're supposed to be building a network and there's all this pressure. So now every conversation, there's these lingering ghosts in the corner, like, you know, I got to add you to LinkedIn or something. We have to stay in touch. And like, what is it that you do? And how might that benefit my business and blah, blah. But if you can just like come to the, to, in front of someone else and see them for who they are and just be like, hi, and just be with them. Right, and right. Go beyond this concept of networking. You know, in my experience, just incredible authentic relationships emerge, which, you know, which is a really, a, it's a beautiful thing. And, and sure, a conference is one example, but like, you know, think about like people who are out there trying to date and all the pressure that is on a relationship based on the concepts we have. And, and you know, like now with online dating, you've got this entire conceptual profile that you've built mm. and then you go meet someone and you have to like live up to that profile and they have to live up to theirs and and there's just all these concepts in the way. And even before online dating, like this is like in the 50s or 60s, Goffman wrote this book called, Irving Goffman wrote this book called The Presentation of Self in mm. Everyday Life. Yep. This is before any of this technology. And he was just like, we present ourselves because our thoughts themselves are concepts. And these technologies are just an extension of those thoughts. But just by nature, we live in these stories and these stories are very useful. Don't get me wrong. They're very helpful. They're, they have a lot to do with how we, navigate the world and the complexity of the world. But if we forget that those thoughts are stories that we can choose to use or choose to drop, then we end up trapped by them. And I think your example at a conference is the, is the perfect um, illustration because I've been there too. You're just at this event and you're like, I'm supposed to be a certain way that I'm supposed to interact with these people a certain way. And if mm -hmm. you drop it, 
you just become very, very authentic and real connections form. And I feel like it's almost like you have to get out of your own way because as a human being, you are built to connect with people. That's what we do. Mm. And if that's becoming difficult, you likely have a bunch of concepts and stories that are getting in the way of you just being who you naturally are. And maybe that's connecting with people in a boisterous extroverted way, or maybe that's connecting people with like sort of a more introverted way where you find other people who like to have kind of a lower energy and maybe not interact so explicitly. So I think that's a great example. The stories really do block our ability to be who we are sometimes. Yeah. I, I think one of the most interesting ones that you're bringing up is this idea of um, kind of self storytelling, you know, that the self narratives we have around ourselves and how those get in the way of, of connection, you know, whether it's, you know, one of the interesting things in my own life that I noticed that, that, that I had to, I really had to work on, and I still don't feel like I'm, you know, great at it yet, but is looking at other people in the eyes when I'm speaking. I'm really good at looking at their eyes when they're speaking. But when I'm speaking, I tend to, again, this is like this kind of very low level. In fact, I was reading something from Daniel Siegel in his book, Aware. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and uh, it's attached to the emotion of shame. I'm pretty convinced, mm -hmm. um, which is an emotion that, 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 that pushes you to hide, you know, and so I have, you know, my own kind of thinking and reasons for what, why this might be. Um, but, it, but, it, but it prevents me from connecting in the, very much the way you're saying. And so I've, there's like this self narrative around who I am or am not, you know, and a lot of these things are things, ways we think we feel we're deficient or, we're, you know, broken or damaged goods or messed up in some way, you know. And then the very sort of self-protective mechanisms that come into play to keep ourselves safe actually make the whole experience with the other person much less rewarding. You know, neither of you are connecting. And so the self, you know, clamps down in order to, again, stay safe and protect itself. But what you're missing out on is joy. You're missing out on connection. Absolutely. I was reading recently... Um, there was a scientist, I'm afraid his name has, has escaped me, um, but was talking a little bit about how, uh, about generalized anxiety disorder, which includes panic attacks and PTSD. Um, and if you think about it, like anxiety and depression specifically are two uh, issues that really manifest subjectively in the stories that we tell ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. um, anxiety manifests specifically as a, as a feeling of threat and danger uh, where there might not be any. Um, potentially uh, the danger associated with uncertainty uh, and depression sort of circles around these very negative stories, these negative spirals on ourselves and the situations around us. Uh, and the anxiety case was really interesting because the scientist was basically arguing that disorder is the wrong word because it sort of suggests that something is sort of maladaptive. But from this perspective, historically, anxiety was a very adaptive position. It's probably why we're all here, why we survived, mm. is that enough of us were anxious enough to be like cautious of the immense and incredible amount of threats all around us, from right. Right. cleanliness to potential disease to bears in the woods and all the poisonous yeah. berries and all the things that could have killed us. And so now we're in this world where we have an abundance of food, but we're wired to eat as much as possible yeah. to like stockpile in a scarcity mentality. And we're also in a very, if we're lucky, we're in a relatively safe environment, yet we're constantly anxious about all the threats that might be around us. Mm -hmm. But in this scientist's point, it, it's not really a disorder. I mean, that's actually how we are wired to function in some way. And of course it can become a disorder, but you know, it's not really, it's hard to describe that as maladaptive, right? And of course, there's a lot of people who are in less safe areas where they're not even really thinking about anxiety as a problem because it seems pretty justified. Yeah. Uh, and if, you, if you're in, an, in, a, in a dangerous area or if you, if you have been in a dangerous area, you know what that's like. The last thing you're concerned about is whether your anxiety is maladaptive. You're like, no, this is keeping me alive right now. This is safe. Um, so it's a, it's a great example of how these stories really are the, the reality we live in. 
It's like a disorder, depending on what the goal is. If the goal is to stay safe and, and stay alive, then yeah, then it makes perfect. Then as you say, it's justified. If the goal is happiness, <laughs> um, then anxiety and these other things get in the way. Yeah, I guess we didn't adapt for happiness. We didn't adapt for happiness. <laughs> you know, and I, I often, it's the, the brain's biggest priority is keeping you safe. You know, it's keeping you alive. Makes and sense. happiness is very much a secondary consideration for the brain. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's unfortunate because, you know, we ask somebody, what do you want in life? What do you want for your kids? What they want is happiness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, so, so we've, got, we've got a brain that wants one thing, but then our intentions and our kind of higher cognitive processes are what we would consider ourselves, you know, ourselves, want something different. And at times those two things are at odds with each other. All right, we could go on for, forever on this topic. I think this is a fascinating topic, but I want to yeah. keep the conversation moving because we've got a lot to yeah. cover. Well, let me add one thing before yeah, you please. move on, which please. is that, on that last point, like, I'm not sure we know what happiness is. Mm. And when people say that, like, we want happiness, I think generally our society is quite confused between the difference between pleasure and happiness and, like, fulfillment mm. and how these things are found, right? Like, and one of the, you know, one of the great examples of this is, like, you can get an immense amount of fulfillment and life satisfaction from climbing a mountain. But that is not necessarily a pleasurable or enjoyable endeavor, especially not the first time. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, this is often my reply when people ask me why I spent two months in a monastic setting practicing mindfulness for 10 plus hours a day. Well, you know, some mountains are worth climbing. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure we understand what happiness is. And if that idea of climbing a mountain or climbing the mountain within scares you, that should be a nice cue. Like you don't have to practice mindfulness. You don't have to climb a mountain. You don't have to do anything. But it might be worth reflecting on what you think happiness really is and whether that's accurate or not in the short term or the long term. So I just had to get that in because you brought up, you brought up the H word and there's this great book called the happiness industry, mm. which um, explains a little bit about how the stories in our culture from advertising to, you know, technology and the Silicon Valley well-being technologies as well are included about how they sort of sell us an idea of happiness that may not be to our benefit. Um, so there's a lot to unpack there. Like you said, we should probably yeah. move on. I had to sort of, you dropped the H-bomb. So. I dropped the H-bomb. <laughs> I did it. We I have to talk it. about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about one kind of core aspect, I think, of happiness. Uh, I'm noticing birds chirping in your background. I've noticed also, also that you're in nature, which I just think is amazing. Um, um, you were, you were the, the lead uh, of user experience or, or product experience at Muse. Mm. Um, you were one of the first to, you were the first to be brought on in that capacity and you built out the team that really designed Muse. And so again, for, for those who don't know, Muse Headband um, is, is one of the very best technologies out there for basically like a meditation assistant, so some, a technology that helps you get into deep, deeper states of meditation and also helps you learn what your brain is doing while you're meditating. I think that's uh, a really big component. I'm just going to hold mine up for those who are looking at the video. That's what it looks like. <laughs> you got one. <laughs> this, is, this is Muse 2. The, uh, these are the, 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 the metallic parts you can see right there actually are um, make contact with your forehead. So you wear it like this, right? So it goes right behind your ears. You wear it like that while you meditate, right in the middle of your forehead. Um, and, um, and then it gives you this neurofeedback in the form of auditory sound. So, so Jay, explain to us how this works and why that's so useful when you're meditating. So how the technology works or how, how, the, te how the technology works and then why, why would someone care? Why, why would someone want to use this while they're meditating? I think, you know, having been a key part of the team, like when I joined, it was just sort of a technology prototype. And my role was to create a sort of compelling product experience out of it. And um, I had just come off a successful project in the mindfulness technology space and the team were looking to explore mindfulness. And so we decided to create this experience where um, this headband would actually help guide you um, in a mindfulness practice. And well, how the technology works, I mean, your brain it uses EEG for those who might be familiar of electroencephalography. For those who aren't, basically your brain is an electrochemical 
uh, organ. Every neuron in your brain has or uses sort of an electrochemical gradient to communicate through the synapse between neurons. And the sum total of this is sort of a very subtle electric field that right now is around your head, wherever you are, whoever you are, you have a subtle electric field around your head. And we've all got halos. Yeah, we've, we've all got, got invisible halos. I love yeah, it. That, that's <laughs> it right. So basically, this headband is sort of passively receiving that information. Yeah. And we did a lot of work with the science team and, and doing a lot of training uh, and even using some machine learning to see what kind of useful information we could draw from the sum total. So this isn't reading your mind. It's a sum total of, you know, all the billions of neurons in your head. You're just getting a sense of like the general state. And what we were able to sort of distinguish there, do a reasonably good job. I wouldn't say like, you know, the same accuracy you're going to get a scientific laboratory, but with a reasonably useful degree, we're able to distinguish between the state of focus and the state of kind of open-ended mind wandering or distraction. Mm. And we use that as a cornerstone to build a guided meditation experience uh, that was compelling. And after, you know, it's been maybe two years since um, I left the Muse team and maybe five or six years since I started working on the project. And mm. so looking back, kind of looking back at what we've created and having some distance and saying, I would say one of the strongest things that we were able to create with the Muse experience is that the first time you use it, the first few times you use it, it really does an incredible job at transitioning your understanding of what mindfulness is. That we've researched so many people who are experiencing this and they go from a, a sort of vague understanding of what meditation is supposed to be about and maybe some esoteric religious associations or philosophical associations or even new agey, like hippie type associations. Mm -hmm understanding that there's actually some real tangible change that's happening on a physiological degree in your brain. And that is a measurable change that we actually walk around in our waking life with this organ in our heads and its state very much defines how we experience the world, kind of like what we were talking about earlier. And so I think people walk away from the news experience with a very heightened level of introspective curiosity, like, wait, so much of my reality is defined by my brain and my brain can be in different moods and different states. Mm -hmm. So working to cultivate a healthy state of mind is something I can do, something I can get better at. I can get better at these skills. That shift in perspective can be very, very powerful. And I think there are many doors to get that specific perspective. I don't think Muse is a replacement for any of the doors out there. I think it's just kind of a new door that fits into our scientific, neuroscientific zeitgeist that really appeals to a certain audience who are kind of skeptical of all this, this sort of um, new agey stuff and actually want to get to the brass tacks of like, what am I really doing here when I practice mindfulness? Because it feels like I'm sitting here doing nothing and it feels really frustrating. Mm. Uh, and we really designed the experience around those first few uh, sessions, really having a shift in perspective about what you're actually doing when you sit there and practice mindfulness. So that's, that's kind of my view from 10,000 feet at this point. Yeah. You know, it's interesting what you bring up about the critical role, I think, of, me you know, you could think of it like measurement or monitoring or, or, or sort of tracking progress as you get better at the skill of meditation. Um, because you're right, the subjective experience of meditating can be very frustrating, can be, I, I, I uh, again, I, I'm trying to go back in my mind's eye to, you know, when I first began this, I, 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 I don't, I didn't have, I don't remember in my memory having this sort of kind of negative frustrating experiences, but I know a lot of people do, you know, the mind wandering and a lot of people misunderstand what the goal of meditation is. They assume it's to empty out the mind and when they have these mind wandering thoughts, they assume they're doing it wrong. There's all that kind of misinformation, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but, but I do think, you know, I'm thinking of a Teresa Mabel's research on this concept of progress. Teresa Mabel's a Harvard Business School professor, and she's really been looking at intrinsic motivation and, and, this, and how it, it is really fostered. And, and one, of the, one of the ways it's fostered is visual progress is actually the experience of, it, of seeing yourself improving 
through some kind of externalized tracking system. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have that, it's really hard to stay motivated. Yeah, I think we walk uh, an ethical tightrope here. And I think, I think the reason, you know, Muse in some way is a Trojan horse. It's giving you this motivational architecture, but ultimately at the same time, a huge part of these practices is about not judging yourself, not being self-critical, not aggressively striving to be better and better. And uh, this was a big challenge in the design process. Um, You know, we had versions that were way too gamified and we had versions that weren't gamified enough, but the way that I kind of navigate this, and I still really do believe this is that there's this concept of skillful means, um, which is sort of an old Buddhist concept, but I think it, it's very inherent in good design as well, which is the idea that if you're trying to reach someone, you want to speak their language. You want to find a way that you can communicate, that you really listen to where they're at and you understand their context and you empathize with them and you feel compassion for them. And so in some sense, Muse is a, is a design that makes some sacrifices in integrity, I would say, in order to reach out to those who are really stuck in aggressive striving mentalities, that our world is basically our our career, our relationships, everything is just get more, get more, get better, Mm self-improvement. And, you know, in some ways, these traditions like mindfulness are are not really designed for that world. They're, They're designed for you know, thousands of years ago when the idea of going up on a mountain and doing nothing for a while is not different from just kind of like sitting in your house and doing nothing for, for a while because there right. wasn't much to do. Right. But now we're in this situation where we all have so much to do. We were so busy and there's so we, you know, we're all striving to be the most successful, you know, perfect body, healthy, like, you know, super popular, incredibly influential people. We all need to be perfect we need to be like gluten-free and organic diets and hit in the gym every morning at six in the morning and meditation is very dangerous if it falls into that category if it becomes just another thing on your to-do list that you're striving to do but at the same time there is a sort of compassionate idea to reach out to people who are in those areas and introduce them to a practice that might dissolve it i used to get some flack at the at the muse team when I'd say things like, um, you know, Muse is truly successful if users don't need it anymore. And this is like, you know, not what the investors want to hear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we dealt with that. I, you know, I, I think we dealt with that a lot. We dealt with the, the conflict between trying to hold the integrity of a mindfulness practice um, and what that means for people's wellness and well-being with the structure of a venture-funded startup and yeah. the incentives that are that are strived for by the executives and the leaders and the people that are trying to, you know, thinking more on the sort of business side. Um, and I personally believe that we walk that tightrope quite well. And there aren't there aren't pla- there are definitely places where I feel like the integrity is not as good as it used to. But there are also facts like the millions of meditations that have been completed and the impact that we've had. That at the end of the day, those people are sitting with their eyes closed, focusing on their breath, being guided into some pretty sort of gentle states of mind um, through this designed architecture to welcome Mm -hmm. them in, in the context of a very busy life. So it's a very subtle conversation, if you couldn't tell. Um, I'm pretty passionate about this line. And, And since then, I've worked on a number of projects in the mindfulness space, and we're always walking this line. There's no perfect answer there right? Uh, in terms of wanting to have the compassion to reach out to the, the lives that people are facing today, but at the same time, wanting to preserve the integrity of that practice. And I face this every time I even just guide a meditation, uh, mm-hmm. whether it's, you know, the community that I'm forming in my neighborhood versus leading meditation in an organization, you know, we're walking these ethical boundaries and, you know, what more can we do than try our best to walk those lines and, uh, and, that's what I think we all need to be, the level we need all to be thinking about when it comes to this intersection between mindfulness and the modern world and technology. Yeah, that's such a fascinating 
challenge, you know, to walk that middle road. I mean, I love that it's, that's the, what I just said comes straight from Buddhism, right? <laughs> right. The middle path, but, but it, but it, but it is like a, it is a really tricky thing. And I, and, and, and it's important. So, so I want to jump into, cause what you're doing is leading right into attention activism, which I know you've been involved in. Yeah. Um, and these pressures of these startups in the brain and neurotech community, the mindfulness community, uh, which is kind of one of the biggest, I would guess, I would call, kind of call it subsets within the kind of broader neurotech space, um, of how to square the various pressures. I mean, when you look at the way funding works, and, and again, any new startup is, uh, you know, they don't, some of them bootstrap it, and, and if you can, that's, that's amazing, but, but if you can't, and or if it just makes sense for you to, to, to look at VC or angel or other types of funding, um, you're right. All of, all of the systems are set up in a way that are very consumer oriented. And what I mean by that is consume more and more and more, right? (laughs) And so um, when you look at the way our technologies have evolved, you know, in the past decade, say, um, the trend, in my opinion, is that they've gotten more and more um, attention. they're, They're better and better at hijacking our attention. Uh, and I, when I say that, I use that word pretty intentionally, right? They, they actually uh, kind of against our best intentions uh, pull us into a channel or a platform for periods of time, you know, call it an hour surfing on Instagram or whatever it is, that we didn't really intend to do that. We actually intended to spend that hour with our child you know, or, 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 or any number of other priorities or, or at work, you know, when we're, when we're like YouTube just keeps scrolling through and, and suddenly yeah. we're like, oh my gosh, how did I just waste 45 minutes when I'm meant to be writing this, this long email or this proposal or whatever mm-hmm. I was trying to do. So, so, so how, how do we take back technology? How do we actually and I'm talking about technology creators, which I consider you obviously one of those, but also as consumers, you know, uh, or, or, or thoughtful um, kind of participants. Uh, how do we actually go from kind of a dumb dopamine economy to a smart serotonin economy? Yeah, so when I talk about attention activism, I'm talking about the various sectors and pockets of society and the different roles that people play who all share what you're talking about, this concern about the attention economy, that when attention itself becomes a commodity and people are fighting over it to profit from it, we end up in the situation where all the news media is full of just manufactured outrage Advertising is playing on our desires, insecurities, and fears to sell us whatever, mm-hmm. you know, and our technology is just designed to capture us and be as addictive as possible to hold our attention for as long as possible. And there's a number of different ways, there's a number of different touch points uh, on how we can address this as individuals, as people in government, people in science, people in technology. But before I get to that, I think a really useful metaphor, because this gets so abstract so quickly, a really useful metaphor is the food industry, Mm -hmm. which is not abstract at all, right? So basically what's happening in the attention economy, in our technology, in our advertising, in political discourse, all of this stuff, is what's been happening to our food industry, Mm -hmm. where we are just incentivized to make things tasty and to make things cheap enough to buy and there's no incentive to make things healthy or good for us, right? And when you're looking at the scale of just like, you know, there's a restaurant on the corner, a cafe or whatever, you know, someone's making a great baked good, right? These French artisans made some of the, you know, I love French pastries. Like the French artisans made some of the greatest pastries. They made croissants and chocolatine and this beautiful stuff that you just eat and you're like, oh, the butter, the sugar, yes. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> but then you take that to scale, right? Yeah. When those food organizations become mass producers of products on the grocery stores and fast food chains, right? 
they automatically create this entire capitalist architecture to maximize sugar, find the price point that people will pay for it, minimize anything that costs more, which is likely healthy nutrients and all the other things that we actually want in there. And what do you get? You get our current food system, which is just full of nutritionally deficient, hyper-sweet, everything is made of corn. Like you get bread and it's made of corn. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You get a Pop-Tart and it's made of corn. Right. It's like mean, my, what is a Pop-Tart anyway? Like, right. that's not food. Like, <laughs> if you went back a hundred years and showed someone a Pop-Tart, they'd be like, what is it? Is that cardboard? Like, right it's like so, michael pollan's comment when he's like have some corn with your corn <laughs> yeah, that, yeah exactly right so so that's a good metaphor because basically there's nothing inherently wrong with advertising or technology and like we've been obviously using these to great benefit for years but yeah. the scale of our technology now and the existing incentives from the capitalist system and the way our organizations are structured are driving people like you know Facebook and Snapchat and Instagram and Twitter and media from all the news or organizations that are like hosting these political debates and all this kind of stuff. They're all driven to just maximize the attention at all costs. Yeah. So, like you know, political discourse are like forty-five second sound bites, and apps are just like illusory worlds that are like fake friendships that are just completely not satisfying relationships at all. You're just, you know, editing your own identity and mm -hmm. curating your relationships with people so that you can feel safe and comfortable and you're hooked on this website, but you, you know, a few years later, you're like, wait, I don't have any real friends anymore. <laughs> I just like like things on a feed and that's how I stay connected to people. Right. So, so this is the kind of metaphor that we're, we're dealing with here is that now we're in this like attention economy where all of our media and i use media with like a capital m from technology to news and all this everything in between mm -hmm. are like nutritionally deficient that are just full of sugar right they're just full of whatever makes us feel good in the moment just want to keep scrolling hitting those likes feeling like i know what's going on with no disregard to foundational elements of our society that they're corrupting like democracy and social relationships our awareness of the world, our political discourse, our identities, our, our mental health, our, att our, our, our attention, our, really our attention muscles or attention or capacity. Yeah. And I think that's the mental health, right? Because the, the science is starting to become more clear that attentional fragmentation, like a wandering mind, is not necessarily... Um, great for your mental health, right? This, this sort of default mode network, which is the same network that gets channeled in mindfulness practices that's associated with mind wandering and associated with daydreaming and self-referential thinking mm -hmm. is implicated in a number of mental health issues, both clinical and even non-clinical. Um, so we're talking about some serious stuff. Um, and I won't belabor this point too much, but the attention activists are across society. There are people who are looking at how we might get government regulation involved. There are people who are looking at the science of this, who are building our understanding of what the impact is of the attention economy, right? We have people who are looking to educate people on digital wellness and proper tech habits and how to manage this in your own life. Mm -hmm. And then my big contention and where I fit into this is that I believe mindfulness is a huge part of this conversation because at the same time, as I just mentioned, Mindfulness is a practice that's shown to downregulate the default mode network in the moment, but also over time, like the more you practice, the more your actual default state of the default mode network diminishes, reducing that mind wandering and having the almost opposite effect. So to me, those who are promoting mindfulness in society, whether it's through an app or teaching it in the classroom or leading it in the boardroom or bringing it to hospitals, are also attention activists in the sense that they're resisting this economy by empowering individuals to reclaim their attention in daily life. And all that to say, how can the individual contribute? I believe the first step is to reclaim and regain control of your own faculty of attention. Mm. And whether that means a seated mindfulness practice or a journaling practice or the way you focus when you play your musical instrument or do art or whatever it is, but creating that space in, in your life to say in this moment or throughout these moments or after 9 p.m. or whatever it might be, I'm not gonna let myself be at the whims of Netflix and, and Facebook and all this stuff. 
I'm going to reserve some time to cultivate my ability to say, or my ability to pay attention to what I deem relevant, what I want to pay attention to. And to me, like what we pay attention to, and this is coming from my, you know, years of mindfulness practice, what we pay attention to is our waking life. Like mm-hmm. you've chosen to listen to this podcast. We've chosen to talk to each other. Yeah. We've chosen to spend our attention. And in, our, in this moment, this is what our life is. And so if someone else is, you know, if your attention is being kind of thrown around at the whims of large organizations all day, your waking life is under threat. So mm-hmm. I really do believe that other issues that we're facing from, you know, division to sustainability and climate change to um, income inequality and, and, you know, racism and all this stuff. A lot of this stuff gets affected by our ability to not really understand and communicate what's going on to be a good listener, as we talked about at the beginning. And so I do really think this is all connected and, and, you know, we need to be addressing it at all levels, but the level that I've chosen to, to address it on is attention activism in the larger scale and specifically mindfulness's role in reclaiming our ability to choose how we want to live our lives. It's that beautiful quote by William James where he says, my experience is what I agree to attend to. Absolutely. So tell me this, uh, and, and then we need to wrap up. I, I, I feel like we could be talking, like we could do two more hours. This is <laughs> such an interesting conversation. Uh, but tell me this, there's this idea I have kind of in the back of my head that the, 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 the companies that take control, attentional control away from us, um, uh, over time, people are going to start realizing that and kind of getting a bad taste in their mouth toward those companies. Whereas the ones who give us back control, and, and again, I'm talking specifically attention, which is really the seat of control, um, uh, I think we'll start rewarding more with our dollars. You know, I think of my relationship, you know, the, the, the main app I've been using for three years is Headspace and, and I really love it and I'd pay much, much more than I pay. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> they just don't ask for more. <laughs> but I would because I, but I, have, I have that much of a positive association and I, and, and I don't have that with, with platforms that kind of hijack my attention. I, I kind of am getting like, in fact, I'm on a news fast. I've, I've, I've been fasting uh, from news since May 1st. Um, mm-hmm. And to your point, right? It's had a massively positive impact in my life. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, do, I do allow myself to check on the weekends, you know, but I find that even on the weekends, I'm kind of like, <laughs> it's like I needed to get away from it enough to realize how bad it actually was. Yeah. Well, that's, so that's, we absolutely need to be engaged with our political discourse, right? It's like, we absolutely need to disconnect with it because it's just completely poison. But at the same time, that's what really some of the nefarious politicians want is they want us to disengage so that they can run amok with these systems unchecked. So we're not really better off if everyone decides to disconnect from the news, which I think is happening. I think we're having a lot of just apathy, like politics is just not worth it. But if everyone does that, then you know the dictators win <laughs> because they can do whatever they want. And we're not going to revolt. We're not going to check there. We're just going to have our rights stripped away. Sure. But I agree with you. I think very, you know, foundational to the idea of attention activism is that as we learn to reclaim choice and make more intentional choices about where to spend our time, these business models will become weaker. But I think there's this subtle distinction between like imagining that will happen on its own, you know, Um, it's kind of like that argument that like, you know, if you look back at the history, you know, yeah, wars happen, but then eventually wars end and, you know, incredible people, you know, people are so resilient. That's the nature of things. And I feel like that perspective discredits the individuals who work their ass off Mm. for peace. Yes. There were people who like put their life on the line to get out there and to try to make peace happen. That's right. Those are the people we need to reward. So when I talk about attention activism, I understand activism is a challenging and a strong word, but I really do believe that like what you're saying is right. But the idea that we're all just going to organically stop using those things is not the same as the idea that we all need to come together and help educate people on these issues, train them up on mindfulness, build the government regulation, build the scientific case and make that change happen. And then I agree with you, that change will happen if we can achieve that 
I think a great metaphor from the previous generation is cigarettes, right? Certainly yeah. we need the government regulation. We need the scientific case about lung cancer, but a huge part of it was the social norms changing as more people got educated that it wasn't cool as it used to be yeah. to just light up a cigarette and blow it in someone's face or to like go in someone's house and light up a cigarette or light up a cigarette on an airplane. Like, sure, that became law eventually, but first it became really just way less cool to the point that people were like, you know what? I don't think anyone should be allowed to smoke on the plane. And like now we look at it and we're like, wow, can you imagine you're on a six hour flight? Someone pulls out a cigarette beside you. Right. Like that would just be like the rudest, most horrible thing. Like the whole plane is just going to have to smell this cigarette. Right. Yeah, right. And so maybe one day pulling out your phone will feel like that. Right. Maybe like someone pulls out a phone in the middle of the meeting and you're just uh -huh. like, really? People used to just talk at each other while the other person is just looking at their phone. Interesting. Right? You know what I mean? So, but that's not just gonna happen. I think the part of that that we really need to sort of galvanize is wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you know, um, you can actually have an impact, whether it's just reclaiming your own attention personally as a first step by practicing mindfulness or, you know, keeping the internet out of your bedroom so that you can really kind of reclaim that time for yourself. But working with a mindful society where we're looking at change makers who are bringing mindfulness, I've seen like, you know, High school teachers who have just brought mindfulness to their school. Mm. Um, you know, I've seen people who work at universities bring digital wellness habits to their universities, people who work in hospitals, starting new programs to help those with mental health issues or chronic pain. I've seen government officials um, who are like talking about bringing this at the nation level, like Mindful Nation UK uh, in the United Kingdom are some of the leaders on this, like actually bringing the mindfulness conversation to the federal level. Um, you know, we've got technologists, which obviously we've talked at at length, that are really looking at how we might change the culture of design in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. Also, technologies, technologists who are starting companies that are all about, like you say, technologies that give us back our attention. Um, so it's like, you know, it's a, it's a large movement, but it will take more and more of us and we're nowhere close. And if you forget that, just look at fast food, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, it's still a huge part of the food economy. Right. And then if you, if, you, if you decline it and go to the grocery store, like a huge proportion of the products in the grocery store are following the same principle. You know, like if you give up McDonald's and then go have Pop-Tarts all the time, like you're not really that much better off, right? right. So, you know, it takes a lot. And we're starting to see more electric cars on the road. We're starting to see more organic food, more food that's, you know, I don't even know which food is right because it's so nebulous with all the all the marketing messages but right. we're starting to see better food uh options but they're still like crazy price it's still cheapest to get two big macs or whatever right right so it, it's a it's a fight and and i think the way that that i get over some of the paralyzing hopelessness that i think some people feel is that it happens one step at a time and i do share your optimistic belief that we'll get through it but i'm not naive enough to to imagine some other people are going to do it. Like we need to, yeah. we, need to we need to help. And um, it, yeah, whatever, whatever sector you're in, whatever skill set you have, there's a number of issues that we're facing that you can help on. And I've met a lot of inspiring people that have shaped my perspective on that. Yeah. I love that you bring it back down to individual choice and that, and that we are agents of change, you know, agency as a concept of, of, of individual choice, I think is always when you get down to it, the most powerful position to take when it comes to any kind of change um, because it leaves you with the tools in your hands. You know, it leaves you with the capacity to, to make a difference in whatever space or realm you're in. Um, so Jay, Along those lines, where can people find you? Where can people kind of join what you're talking about with, uh, with attention activism? Uh, first of all, what's your website? Where can people actually find you? So there's two, I have two websites. If you're interested in, uh, in attention activism um, and that whole movement, go to attentionactivist.com. Uh, and there's a newsletter there where I share all the sort of discoveries in this area and the new organizations and new ideas. Um, and we're, we're working with some of the people who are following that to sort of understand how we might build this movement in a bigger way. Um, and then attention, attention activists, plural with an S no, at the end. Singular. Attention, attention activist.com. Great. That's right. And then my name.com, jvdrthy.com. If you're interested in, you know, I do a lot of technology design work for organizations in this area. Um, I keep my rates super affordable, but the caveat 
is I only work with mission aligned organizations. So I'm not just working with whatever financial institution. You'll see a lot of the projects are specifically focused in mindfulness, mental health, well-being, character development. Um, so if you are in that space and you're looking to get a refined design perspective on that and, and try to build a human-centered design process, then I can help. Love it. Love it. Spell VDRT for us. J-A-Y-V-I-D-Y-A-R-T-H-I. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Great. Jay, this has been such a pleasure. Um, you're, you're, again, I, I meant that genuinely when I said that in the introduction. You're one of the most fascinating people I've met over the last year. And um, uh, you, you, you remind me of, of, of kind of the best versions of all of ourselves, these sort of freelancing, uh, uh, tech-informed uh, te sort of do-gooders who are, who are trying to uh, do the hard work that it is to, to carve and create the new future we're all trying to create. It's not an easy path that you've taken, and I think it, 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 it uh, is worth re like bringing that up. Um, this, isn't, this, is, this is a mission-driven path, a purpose-driven path uh, for you, and, and I think it's inspiring for the rest of us to, to learn from you. So thank you so much for your, for your time. Yeah, thank you for saying that, and I really owe a lot of it to those who have led me and, and taught me and guided me on the way. And I think, you know, what you were saying um, about that individual choice, like that's largely been my story is that I started in design working for whatever company would pay. Mm -hmm. And as I started to, to sort of reclaim choice in my life, like you put it, the tools were in my hands and this just seems like the logical thing to do with those tools. And, and so I really owe it to a lot of the people who opened my eyes to, to some of these practices and some of the choice that I've been able to find with it. Um, so yeah, thank you for saying that, but I really want to take your, your words and pass them, pass the gratitude off to those yeah. who have led me. Well, Jay, this has been again, such a pleasure. Um, I hope we get to connect again soon. And uh, again, just thank you for being yeah. awesome. And thank you for your time. Yeah. Thank you. Take care. Okay. Take care, man.